You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. Uh, You can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 this morning. The title of today's sermon is The Good News of his family, the good news of his family. We're preaching through the book of Mark, and the the whole series is called The Good News, and today we're going to be considering how does one become a part of the family of God, a part of the family of Jesus. And and so that leads me to this question, uh, how do you define who is in your family? How do you define who is in your family? Uh, probably most of us, our, our minds immediately go to our, our nuclear family, uh, whoever lives underneath our roof, uh, maybe a mom, a dad, a few kids. Uh, I realize that's not the reality for everyone, but, but that's where often uh, our mind goes first when we hear the word family. Uh, for some of you, your mind might go to your extended family. Uh, so parents of grown children, grown brothers and sisters, uh, even household servants, we're all considered part of the family in the New Testament, right? Sometimes we become so close to people that we adopt them into our family. And so my family uh, and I did that in college when there was a, a young woman and her children that we had never met. She came to live with us for a season, and uh, she, she was falling on some hard times, and, and so she became a part of my family. She, she's my sister even to this day. Her kids are called my nieces and nephews, and, and uh, she's at every family gathering, and, and, and her new husband has become my brother-in-law, and it's just a joyous time, right? Um, my kids have people that they call aunts and uncle who are not biologically their aunts and uncle simply because we are that close to them. The bottom line is your family is who you prioritize, who you take responsibility for, who you are committed to, who you do life with. And in the passage we're going to study today, Jesus is going to radically redefine who his family is and who he cares for as his own. He's going to demonstrate that there is sometimes a difference between the family we are born or even adopted into and those who become family because of following Jesus Christ. And that difference hinges upon the way each individual evaluates Jesus. The the priority that we give him, the way that we lean in and listen to him together, as opposed to listening to our own opinions or others' opinions about him. Our evaluation of Jesus reveals the primary family to which we belong. And so here's our big idea for today. Evaluate Jesus with spiritual judgment and find your place in his spiritual family. 
Evaluate Jesus with spiritual judgment and find your place in his spiritual family. If you have sermon notes that you were given today, uh, you'll find this outline there. Uh, and, and in the song handout, by the way, uh, I also included some visual aids that were going to be on the screen today. Uh, thank you, Laura Cheek, for handling a lot of that for this morning and dealing with the uh, power outage that we endured yesterday and only discovered today. Uh, and thank you for enduring that as well. So uh, our spiritual evaluation of Jesus reveals our place in his family. Last week, David Parker did a great job of demonstrating that Mark is not just filling his gospel with some stories about Jesus so that we would have a nice history lesson. He's not just telling stories about Jesus so that we would be entertained or wowed, but remain unaffected in our hearts. Mark is demonstrating that Jesus is unavoidable. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God, and we must respond to Him. And it's so important. It is the most important thing that you will get right in your entire life, how you respond to Jesus. And so today's section of Mark... We're going to see that truth come up once again, and we're going to see three ways that different people evaluated Jesus during his earthly ministry. In fact, these three ways of evaluating Jesus are fundamental to understand in any age. In apologetics, which is the, the discipline of reasoning about the Christian faith, uh, sometimes these three ways of evaluating Jesus are called the, the trilemma. So you, you, you know the word dilemma, right? The two opposing options. You have to make a choice between the two. Uh, trilemma, three. Three opposing options. You can only make one choice. The, the trilemma, the idea that Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. You can't, make, you can't choose two. You have to choose one. This argument is most often attributed to C.S. Lewis, but it was actually first articulated by the Scottish Christian preacher named John Duncan, who wrote in 1860. He says this, and this quote is in your, uh, in your song guide sheet. He says, Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud, or he was himself deluded and self-deceived, or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma. It is inexorable. Liar, lunatic, Lord, deceiver, deluded, or divine. It doesn't matter how you say it. There's no getting out of one of these three. See if you hear it in the evaluations that I read about in our text today. Look at Mark chapter if you don't have a Bible, there's one either in the seat back in front of you or at the end of your row. We would love for you to be seeing this in God's Word for yourself. We believe that the power is in God's Word. And it, by the way, if you don't have a Bible, take that home with you. We would love for you to have it. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. Then he, Jesus, uh, went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out de demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How could Satan cast out Satan? 
If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. We're seeking to evaluate Jesus with spiritual judgment and therefore find our place in his spiritual family. But today we want to look at these three possible evaluations of Jesus, that, that trilemma, and see where they leave us in relationship to the family of God. And in this, we, we need to wrestle first with our own evaluation of Jesus, and then we must learn to challenge others to wrestle with their evaluation of Jesus as well. Uh, understanding how to explain something like the trilemma for those of us who are believers is, is very helpful as we seek to fulfill the series vision that we've set out in Mark that, that now is the time to tell others the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we need to learn how to call others to a response if we're going to effectively be witnesses for Jesus Christ. And so understand, the trilemma is a helpful way to frame that call. So don't just be listening for yourself. Be listening to how you can pass this on for others. The trilemma is helpful, especially when we can do that right from the text of Mark, like we're going to do today. And so we have three possible evaluations, and the first that we see in the text is this. Evaluation number one, Jesus is deranged. Jesus is deranged. I don't know how your Bible breaks down the sections here, uh, but my Bible connects verses 20 and 21 with the last section about Jesus choosing his disciples. It kind of cuts it off from the section that we read today. And honestly, I think that's a big mistake, obviously, because I chose to frame the sermon this way, right? But those verses introduce the first example of a technique throughout Mark's gospel that he uses called the Markin sandwich. Now, how many of you like sandwiches? Anybody like sandwiches? Yeah, yeah, right? Like, I, I remember when I was a kid, I used to love going to my grandma's house, right? Because for some reason, I don't understand why, she had the best all-beef bologna. Like, I mean, it was just like the best, and right? And she would also... This was, she was a little bit nutty. Um, she would, she would uh, go to the Sparkle grocery store and make sure that she got the freshest Wonder Bread loaf that she could possibly find, right? And she knew the color coding system on the twisty ties to make sure that it was like the freshest, the best sandwich that she could make. And, and, and she was like a genius. Like, she was amazing, right? And Ma Mark is a master of this sandwich technique. 
if you're a scholar, you might call this interpolation, right? This is a real thing. Like, I'm not just making up this sandwich thing. But the sandwich thing sounds a lot better, right? And so as good as it was eating a sandwich at my grandma's house with the meat bringing flavor to the whole thing, and, you know, you just got two pieces of Wonder Bread, that's not a sandwich. So, too, a Markin sandwich is even better if we learn how to interpret it. So if you're working through our reading plan that we have that goes along with this sermon series, you would have learned about this a little bit more this week. Uh, the sandwich works like this. It's, there's actually a page in your, in your song guide that, uh, that shows you this. Um, Mark introduces a certain story. It's like laying down that first piece of bread. This is the foundation of the sandwich, right? And then he, he interrupts that story with a completely different thought, maybe a different story or a different teaching or something like that. And then, and that, so that ends up being the meat, right? And then he finishes the story by laying on the top, the first story, by laying on that top piece of bread. And so the, the two stories, the, the, the two outer pieces of bread and the one in the middle, they end up working together with the meat bringing the flavor and understanding to the two outside pieces of bread. Make sense? Tracking? Okay. So in verse 20 to 21, Mark is introducing the story that he is going to then pick up in verse 31. Jesus went home. And probably this refers to Peter and Andrew's house in Capernaum. It seems that that was something of a home base for Jesus. And the crowds hear about this and they start gathering again. We, we talked about the crowds a lot recently, especially last week. Uh, the crowds were intrigued by the idea of Jesus, but they didn't truly understand who he was. They were willing even to crush him to get what they wanted from him rather than treating him with the respect of the Lord of the universe that he truly is. And here we see the crowd pressing in on him and his disciples again, threatening their physical well-being. This time Mark says they can't even eat. They can't even get a meal in. So just kind of imagine the scene, right? Like, like, like Jesus and his disciples are trying to get a meal inside of Peter and Andrew's house, and the crowd is pressing into the home to such a degree that they can't even make a meal and sit down and eat together. It, it reminds me of like the paparazzi surrounding a celebrity to get their picture in the tabloid. And so his family, his, his biological family, hears about this phenomenon all the way from Nazareth, and they think, we got to do something about this. It's time for an intervention here. He's out of his mind. We need to go to Capernaum. We need to physically seize him and protect him from these crowds and from his own savior complex. It does kind of make me wonder if they were just a little bit jealous about who Jesus was spending all of his time with when they were his real family, right? Perhaps they were thinking that this Messiah thing had just gotten a little bit out of hand and that they were, they were going to be dishonored by the religious leaders or, or by the Romans or something like that. Whatever the case, they are defining family in purely biological terms. They're, they're thinking, Jesus is our responsibility. We must save him from the crowds and from himself. And we can know that because their assessment of him is that he is out of his mind. He's a lunatic. He's deluded. He's deranged. Now let's just consider the logic of that evaluation for a moment. Would crowds come 
in masses to see a deranged man thinking that he can change their life. He obviously has done some miraculous signs for these crowds, for them to be so persistent in getting to him. He obviously has shown them true compassion and care and power and authority. Not only that, just, just go back to like the beginning of the book of Luke for me and think about that. Like, like his mother clearly was told that he is the son of God and the savior of his people, if you remember the birth narrative that's there. And we can assume that uh, she would have shared that with his brothers and sisters. I mean, you can't really, you know, like that's a good mom story right there. And so it seems to me that this assessment from Jesus' biological family is kind of backwards, don't you think? Like it seems to me that the crowds are the ones who are deranged. They are the ones who are losing their minds over the fact that Jesus can heal their diseases and cast out their demons. And they're the ones not treating Jesus with appropriate care. But if Jesus truly can do these things, if Mark's account is valid up to this point, then we cannot assume that he is deranged. His claims must be valid. His calling must be sure. And you today cannot avoid him. But even today, a large portion of our culture looks at Jesus and says, for sure he's deranged. When they hear his teaching and his, his commands, they, they find them so extreme, so archaic, so countercultural, so against their desires that he must have been out of touch with reality. You don't hear the notion very much anymore that Jesus was a good person or a good teacher, but not Lord. The sexual ethics of Christianity are mocked as an outdated construct of misogynistic, homophobic bigotry. Our culture shrieks at the claim that Jesus is the only way that his words are absolute truth because the only thing that's considered absolute anymore is the fact that nothing is absolute. Prove that to me without telling me it's absolute. The call to lay down your life and to find your identity in Christ alongside the rest of his people is absolutely insane in a culture that idolizes the individualized self. And if Jesus were to come into our town and he were to preach what he preached 2,000 years ago, he may gather some crowds who need to get healed, but most people would write him off as a lunatic, as deranged. Now, that's, that's how his biological family evaluated him. Uh, evaluation two is even more severe, and it comes from his national family, the, the religious leaders of the nation of Israel at the time. So look at verse 22. It says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts, excuse me, he casts out demons. Evaluation two is that Jesus is demonic or deceptive. Demonic or deceptive. This is the, the meat of the sandwich that we were talking about. This is the, really the key to interpreting the first and second sto the first story that he has already been started. We've encountered the scribes quite a few times in this book of Mark so far. Uh, generally speaking, scribes are a subgroup of Pharisees 
the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. They're experts in the Old Testament law. They're experts also in the man-made traditions of the Pharisees that were enforced in order to make people keep the law better, they thought. The last time we saw the scribes in the book of Mark, they were offended by Jesus, and now they were conspiring with the Herodians to how to destroy him. And so this seems to be one such attempt. Here we have a new batch of scribes coming in from Jerusalem to check out this Jesus guy. This means that the news about Jesus is spreading, and now he has the attention of the Sanhedrin, the highest court of religious leaders in Israel. These guys would be representatives of the Sanhedrin. And so this is, understand, key representatives of the nation. These guys represent the national identity. And they come and they write up their report. And their evaluation is that Jesus' ministry of casting out demons must not be of God. It must be of satanic origin. How much of of Jesus' prior run-ins with the scribes played into that evaluation? I don't really know if they're just trying to find a way to, to, to write him off or what, but... Essentially, they're saying, uh, not my family, not my family, not my people. He's of the household of the prince of demons. We would understand the prince of demons to be Satan. In other words, they believe that Jesus is a pawn of Satan running a large-scale con job on the whole nation of Israel. And so let's examine that logic with Jesus through the, the parables that he tells Look at verse 23. Jesus says, uh, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. So like, this makes me think of that, that Benjamin Franklin political cartoon, if you remember, the join or die, where the, the snake is chopped up into all the little pieces and the, each one represents one of the colonies, right? And, and Benjamin Franklin is saying, we die if we, if we are separate, but we're together if we're together. And so that's the argument that Jesus is building here. If a nation is divided, it will fall. Jesus continues and he says, if a a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Again, this is is family language here. So uh, some of you have extended families that don't get along. You, You know what this is like, right? Brothers and sisters that don't talk to each other, parents and kids that are ostracized. It's extremely painful. A household, a family that exists like that is not thriving. And that would be even more painful in Jesus' day where biological family, extended family units meant so, so much. And so Jesus is using that all to build up this argument to this point. His main point comes in verse 26. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. So if Jesus is really demon-possessed, and he's casting out demons by Satan's power, that means that Satan has totally lost it, which is still good news for Israel. Now, of course, Jesus is also showing that their evaluation of him is completely off base. Satan would never do that. And their conclusion makes no sense. Instead, Jesus is going to show us 
what is actually happening by using this third parable, verse 27, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And so Jesus, as he casts out demons from the bodies of powerless people, is entering into the house of strong men. And he's binding them up, and he's taking what had previously belonged to the prince of demons. Praise the Lord. Jesus is plundering the household of the kingdom of darkness. He's storming the gates of hell with the good news of his presence. And if Jesus has done the things that Mark claims that he has done up to this point, then we cannot write him off as demonic or a deceiver. Today, people would be less likely to accuse Jesus of of demonic influence because they scientifically want to rule out any natural, I'm sorry, any supernatural explanation. But they would still maintain that Jesus had the masses deceived. Many would believe that that Jesus' miracles were were really just magic tricks of mass deception. They they might believe that that he staged the healings with people who weren't really sick in order to to gain a following, something that Benny Hinn and other faith healers have done. They might even try to explain away his miracles with illusions or or massive uh, natural phenomenon. They might believe that the gospel writers themselves were deceivers, giving an untruthful description of what Jesus did and claimed and taught. But even that logic doesn't hold up. Because if that were true, why would they have killed Jesus? And why would Jesus have gone to his death and all of his followers with him to cover up such a deception? You don't take a deception like that to your death. What really, what really did he have to gain if he suffered all of that for the sake of that lie? On the other hand, if someone does subscribe to spiritual explanations, they, they might say that, that Jesus was one expression of a, a spiritual force that can go by many different names. Basically, the idea that that all religions are the same, all paths lead to God, one God under many names. That's basically the same as saying that Jesus is the same as demons. The Bible doesn't give us that choice. The Bible says that there is only one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that all of the gods of the nations are demons warring against the one true God. And that Jesus Christ alone is God in the flesh. The Bible says that Jesus Christ alone can forgive sins because he died for sin, taking the punishment of sin upon himself. He entered into the grave. He entered into the strong man's ultimate house. And he plundered the strong man by leading forth a host of captives in his resurrection. And so look again at how Jesus evaluates their evaluation. Verse 28, he says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. 
Jesus says that to attribute his works to the work of Satan is blasphemy, and not just any blasphemy, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And the word blasphemy in this context refers to words of slander. So the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is is slandering the Holy Spirit. We saw in chapter 1, during the baptism and temptation of Jesus, that, that Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit in his earthly ministry. And so to give a final evaluation and declaration that he's working by the power of Satan and not the Holy Spirit is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. To reject Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ Operating in the power of the Spirit is to incur punishment upon yourself for all eternity with no chance of forgiveness. Now, now some people wonder, so how do I know that I or someone I love hasn't committed this unforgivable sin? Ever hear anybody worried about that? Definitely encountered that. My answer to that person, if that's you, If you're truly asking the question, then you're saying that your conscience is tender to even ask the question, and you haven't committed the sin. (laughs) I would also say that if you're worried about someone you love, the only way that you would know is that you just keep telling them the gospel. People can look pretty doggone hard-hearted and still not commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus says that every sin And every blasphemy can be forgiven except the one who blasphemes the Holy Spirit. And so essentially, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is to make a final declaration that Jesus is not who he claims to be. That he is not the devil, or that he is of the devil and he's not of the Spirit. It's to carry that evaluation with you to the end and therefore reject the Messiah and miss your only hope for forgiveness. And any final rejection of the Messiah will result in eternal punishment that that person never has forgiveness. The the Bible is consistent in that regard. So if your conscience is tender and you don't want to commit the unforgivable sin, don't. Don't. Acknowledge Jesus for who he is. Evaluate him rightly. That's what the disciples had done. In verse 31, Mark picks up the scene that we started in verses 20 and 21. Uh, This is the top piece of bread in the sandwich, okay? And Jesus is trying to have a meal with his disciples. The crowds are pressed in around him, making that nearly impossible. And Jesus' family has now come to seize him and take him back to Nazareth because they think he's gone nuts. So verse 31, and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mothers and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God he is my brother and sister and mother. Here's the third evaluation made by those who are sitting around Jesus, his, his disciples. Evaluation three, Jesus is divine. Jesus is divine. So far, Jesus has been rejected by his biological family. 
He's been rejected by his national family, Israel's religious leaders, and he's been identified with Satan's family. But Jesus shows us the, the totally different way that Jesus defines family. Here, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, sister, and mother. In other words, it's the people who evaluate him rightly. Those who are sitting close around him, who are sitting at his feet and, and listening to his teaching. Uh, notice in this scene, Jesus looks around him and sees those whom he identifies as his family. That's the picture of Jesus as Lord. Jesus at the center, everyone else around. That's the picture that I've just been enjoying this week as I've read this text. Jesus says that his family members are those who gather around him, who do the will of God, who listen to his teaching and obey his commandments. Disciples center their lives around Jesus and hang on his every word. These disciples are acting more like his family than his biological family or his nationalistic family. They're, they're not trying to save him. They're not trying to control him. They have centered their lives around him. It's his disciples who are his family. They are the ones who are with him and doing the will of God, his heavenly Father. Ultimately, it is the will of God that every person would come to salvation by recognizing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That they would follow him, that they would devote their lives to him. These are the people who so far have evaluated Jesus rightly based on what they know about him. Now, they don't fully understand what it means for Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God but they have experienced that reality and responded appropriately. They've experienced him as Savior and Lord. He's saved them from their futile ways, from their own paths. He has forgiven their sins. Remember verse 28, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. That's what it means for Jesus to be Savior that your sins would be forgiven and atoned for. So Jesus has, so far in this book, called tax collectors and sinners out of their former way of life. Earlier in the book of Mark, he, he had an argument with the scribes about whether or not he had the authority to forgive sins. And so to show them that he had the authority to forgive sins, he told a paralytic to get up and walk. And he proved it right there and then. The disciples are experiencing his salvation. And they're regarding him as Lord. The disciples saw the miracles of Jesus, the, the saving power of Jesus, and they did not reject him. They remained with him. They sat around him. And while they may not have yet fully understood that Jesus was divine, they were moving toward that ass assessment by centering their lives around him as Savior and Lord. And we today have this story in light of the whole book of Mark. We have this story in light of Peter's assessment of ch in chapter 8 where he says, you are the Christ. We have this story in light of the fact that Jesus died for the sins of his people and rose again in chapters 15 and 16. We have this story in light of Mark's assessment in chapter 1 that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And so consider the logic with me. We've been doing that each time, right? Jesus has proven his authority to forgive sins, bind Satan, and teach. 
He's proven his authority by his ability to heal disease and cast out demons. He's proven his authority by his ability to conquer death and walk out of his grave. And it is only right to acknowledge him as divine. It is only right to acknowledge him as divine. It makes far more sense than the other two options that he is deluded or demonically possessed and therefore deceiving the masses. And that's the, the point of the trilemma that we talked about earlier. I quoted it in its earliest form and most simple form by John Duncan. Uh, here is C.S. Lewis making the same argument in ways that only C.S. Lewis can. It's in your guide. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But not let, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about this being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither lunatic nor fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. And so let me ask you, how have you evaluated Jesus? By the way, to ignore him, to write him off, is to evaluate him as one of the first two, either liar or lunatic. Every, every single person must come to terms with Jesus. And no one else in all of history has made such claims and unfailingly backed them up as Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And we must come to terms with our own evaluation of him. We cannot leave people wondering also where they stand with Christ. We must call people to come to terms with their evaluation of Christ. Every person must understand what hangs in the balance of this consideration. And so let's just consider that for a moment. What hangs on our evaluation of Jesus? Well, evaluation one, that, that he was deranged, was the, the position of Jesus' biological family. And, and notice where we find them in the scene. They're on the outside. They're on the outside, at least with the crowd, if not even separated further from Jesus than the crowd was. So if we write Jesus off as deranged, if we evaluate his commands and his calling as over the top or crazy, we remain on the outside of his true family. Now we know that later, many of his family members came to believe 
And if you're hearing this message today, there is still time to repent and evaluate Jesus rightly. But as long as his biological family thought the claims of Jesus were crazy, deluded, over the top, they remained on the outside. Jesus did not consider them part of his true spiritual family, no matter how much he loved them as his biological family. This also demonstrates a very important truth, especially in our traditionally Christian area. We have to understand that our biological family ties do not save us. Our biological family ties are not eternal. We cannot ride into heaven on our parents' faith or our spouse's faith. Each person must evaluate Jesus with spiritual judgment and find their own place in His family. Our national family identity is not what saves us either. Evaluation two was the position of the scribes, the leaders of national Israel. And some people think today that, that be, they're part of God's family by virtue of being an American, of being born in a quote-unquote Christian nation. But here's the thing. There's no such thing as a Christian nation. There never has been. There never will be. The kingdom of God that plunders the dominion of Satan is not bound to one earthly nation. It is the church those who have given their lives to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and live for a kingdom that is not of this world and is made up of every people from every nation and language and tribe, that is the kingdom of God. That makes up the kingdom of God. But it was the leaders of the nation of Israel that evaluated Jesus as being a demonically possessed deceiver. When he didn't affirm their ways like they expected him to, they wrote him off as a liar. And how did Jesus respond to that evaluation? I'll just remind you again. He said that it earns eternal punishment without forgiveness. So those who write off Jesus as demonic or a deceiver will, and fail to receive him will therefore receive the judgment of the demons. The same judgment that awaits the demons is the same judgment that ev for everybody who finally rejects Jesus. And if you reject Jesus as valid because he doesn't measure up to what you want him to be, you will be the one who receives an unfavorable evaluation from Jesus in the end. There is eternal conscious torment in hell for all who reject Jesus as Savior and Lord because he is the only Son of God who came to save and we must evaluate him as that divine Lord. Evaluation three was the, the position of the disciples and they received a place in Jesus' true spiritual family because they evaluated him rightly. In the midst of all this apologetics talk, I don't, I don't want you to miss the wonder and the joy of what it means to be a part of Jesus' family. Jesus is saying that when you believe in him, when you trust him as Savior and Lord, you don't just change your intellectual understanding, you change your fundamental identity. You change your name. You change at a heart level. Every sin forgiven, every motivation redeemed, 
You get to become a child of God who does the will of the Father. You get to become a part of Jesus' true spiritual family. By the way, in the New Testament, that family is known as the church. That's what we're going to be expressing right here today, even as we get ready to gather around the Lord's table and, and celebrate the family meal together. That also means that our biological family ties are, are not our ultimate family ties. And the church of Jesus Christ is a stronger, more eternal family than even our biological family. And so if you find yourself as a believer in an unbelieving family, we are here for you. Jesus knows what that's like to have a biological family that rejects him. And he's giving you a spiritual family for that. And if your biological family is made up of believers, awesome. Celebrate that. And then together, find your place in the family of families of the church. Maybe you've heard the, the medieval proverb, uh, blood is thicker than water. Meaning that, that blood family ties are thicker than other relational ties, right? Well, if that's true, the blood of Christ is the thickest blood there is. And his family bond is the strongest, most eternal bond that we could ever find. And so, what is your evaluation of Jesus? And what does that mean about how you define your family? I want to, I must call you to a response this morning. You must determine how you evaluate Jesus, understanding all of the implications. If you think he is deranged, don't bother with him. Who cares? Another madman on the street. If you think he's a deceiver, run away from him. Don't, don't give him your time. But if there is even a chance that he is divine, then you must repent and surrender and believe. There is no time to lose. Every minute not lived in his salvation and under his authority is like being in a feud with your true family. And it doesn't have to be that way. And so cry out to him. If you find out that you've not evaluated Jesus rightly, confess that you've not treated him as the Savior and Lord that he truly is. Confess that you have sinned against him by living life your own way. And tell him that you trust him as the only Savior and Lord. That you trust Him because His sacrifice on the cross covers every one of your sin. That you trust Him because His resurrection from the dead gives new life. Ask Him to show you what it means to, to live a part of His spiritual family. And if you do make that choice today, you need to tell someone who's in the family already. Tell the person you came with, Tell one of our elders, myself, John, Alden, who you'll see at the end of the service, anybody that you've seen up on stage you could talk to. If you bow your knee before Jesus as Savior and Lord, we are then family. And we are here for each other and you don't have to walk alone. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.